0: Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Miradas, a podcast on the current affairs and cultures of Latin America, with Lawrence Blair and myself, John Bartlett. Joining me this week is Chilean political scientist Camila Vergara, whose work focuses on constitutions, and she's just seen her first book published on the subject at a fascinating time for her country. On the 25th of October this year, Chile will vote in a constitutional referendum that will decide whether the Pinochet-era 1980 document will be replaced. Camila gave some fascinating insights into how constitutions forge a path for a country, how Chilean civil society could be incorporated into the process, and finally, how the demands of the explosive social movement that has rocked Chile since October last year are rooted in the current document. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and you'll be hearing from Laurie at the end of the show. Joining us from New York is Camila Vergara, a scholar of constitutions and populism from Santiago, Chile. She's currently a postdoctoral research scholar at the Eric H. Holder Jr. Initiative for Civil and Political Rights at the Columbia Law School, and where she also holds a PhD in political theory. She's recently released uh, her first book. Uh, It's in Spanish at the moment, under the title República Plebea or Plebeian Republic, and it's going to be released later this year in September. Uh, in English, uh, with a slightly different twist, as you explained to me before we started recording. What is the premise of the book, and how do your kind of research interests in uh, in uh, populism and constitutions combine?
1: I uh, adjusted this, uh, my book that actually was written uh, originally uh, for Chile. I have been uh, researching this for almost 15 years of how to change a constitution actually democratically and not through representatives, which is uh, a very aristocratic mechanism of writing the constitution so um i uh, adjusted uh the book and the book um it has three parts the first part i lay the case uh, of systemic corruption explaining how from the founding of the us uh the first uh, representative um system in the world um the system uh of, of politics was designed to uh, insulate uh, elected representatives from the popular will. They wanted the votes from, from the people, but not actually the pressure. So it was designed in this manner uh, to be an elected uh, republic. And, um, uh, and and the elections have proven very bad at uh, a, a accountability. So uh, what happens is that the system... Uh, works for the few and not the many and this uh might uh, sound like a slogan but at the end uh, is this is actually how it works when it's, all the laws that exist in the uh, uh constitution allow for the rich to get richer and to the poor to get uh, poorer or to get uh, to be stagnated so the first part is just setting the stage for uh, allowing the people to um, broaden their minds to allow for social change uh, at the constitutional level and not just in terms of policies then I go to recover some uh, uh, wisdom from uh, other thinkers that should to think about uh, institutionalizing popular power. So Machiavelli, uh, Condorcet in the French Revolution, uh, Russell Luxembourg uh, with the workers councils in uh, the beginning of the 20th century in Germany, and finally with Hannah Arendt who uh, uh, theorized a, a council system uh, as a way to allow for uh, common people to exercise uh, a politics. And the last part is uh, the basically thought about uh, of as a as a political intervention uh, because it has a guide for um, people on the ground to create their own council if they uh, if they wish, uh, giving them the legal tools uh, uh, with w- using existing legislation in Chile to allow for councils to be institutionalized and not to be um, dissipated once this momentum uh, wears off. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, so yeah, I, th- I think it's it's really interesting. And talking about constitutions in the in the Latin American context, uh is obviously it's a, a very important kind of part of the way states run and it also kind of sets the direction um, you know, in Venezuela with the nineteen ninety nine constitution. So I think it's on hold at the moment um as as of twenty seventeen, um when Maduro said that he wants to look into a new kind of constitutional assembly. Um, Bolivia as well in two thousand and nine setting up this kind of plurinational system. And then Chile as well at the other end of the spectrum with the uh, with the 1980 constitution as well, sort of enshrining a sort of neoliberal uh, model. So just kind of in, in your own words, how important are constitutions then in setting the tone for a country? Because we've seen it become such an important part of all three of those examples.
1: Constitutions are the most political documents. Um, people think about them as the uh, high level law that uh, is is uh, uh, unreachable, and uh, we cannot really understand it. But at the end, constitutions are the origin of uh, the social relations and political relations and economic relations. So, so constitutions set the limits and the uh, limits for action, for individual action, and the opportunities for action as well. So, what happens in Latin America with constitution making, and this is um, if you think about um, examples in history, is that the um, Constitutions are understood as um, uh, the establishment of liberty, the establishment of institutions and rules that allow for everybody to be free. Um, and this is kind of the ideal of constitution making, that you're setting the stage for lawmaking in the future and for policy in the future that will respect uh, equal rights. Uh, and in Latin America, that is the most unequal region in the world, there has been a connection between populist and constitution-making, because the majority of people in Latin America are uh, from uh, lower middle classes, if you will. Uh, there is uh, the, the gap between rich and poor is very large. And even if the popular sectors had the right to vote formally, uh, they could not really exercise it or was exercised in a manner that was clientelistic. Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, um, after the neoliberal adjustments uh, of the 90s, um, uh, he comes to power with the promise of changing the system, a system that had excluded the uh, informal workers, for example. Because in Venezuela, it's very uh, paradoxical that the unions... Uh, getting entrenched into the system and they were profiting from the system while uh, the majority of workers, around 54%, were on were in the informal sectors without benefits, without unions. So when it came uh, to um, changing the system for uh, allowing the majority of people to benefit, the unions actually uh, did stand in the way. So Chavez was uh, fighting not only the oligarchic establish- establishment uh, of the upper classes, but also the entrenched union power of the oil sectors. So uh a populist coming to power in a very uh, in a moment of struggle, intense struggle against the oligarchic uh, section of the population and the entrenched powers uh, throughout, and and therefore they need to set the stage for something new. And this is are the constitutions, and they have tried in different manners to allow for the popular sectors to have actual power in the constitution itself. So uh, there was a, an effort to institutionalize the circulos bolivarianos in Venezuela, which are Kind of this um, um, neighborhood associations, and in in uh, Bolivia, which is the first plurinational constitution in the world, uh, the idea was to um, uh, 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 fill in with uh, incorporate the um, uh, Aymara and uh, Inca uh, uh, worldview, if you will, the the native worldview with mm-hmm. the white worldview in order to make some. Something new and not just impose the majority that was uh, indigenous at the time, which was 67 percent. So, so the idea uh, of the constitution-making process in Latin America had come from uh, the tendency to uh, go against inequality, and uh, they have been full of struggles, as uh, we have seen in history. And now, from Chile, we are living a populist moment, if you will, without a populist leader, because there is always coming from the streets. They're not there's no leadership and actually there's a lot of um uh pushback against any kinds of leadership uh, either political parties or uh, even uh, union uh, leadership uh people are very skeptical of uh the um people in power that have been profiting from the system that has uh, been rendered very unjust uh, very unjust now with, uh, with with the coronavirus is even more evident
2: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think if we if we turn our attentions now to the Chilean case, obviously I'm I'm based here in Santiago, um, covering everything that's been going on since the uh, the 18th of October. But so, just as a bit of context for for the listeners, so by the next morning, by the nineteenth of October, seemed to have awoken almost um, with all these demands that had uh, gone sort of unvoiced for such a for such a long time, um, and it was incredible. I mean, it was you know it was this moment where the most sort of stable, prosperous nation in Latin America, at least outwardly, seemed to be kind of you know falling apart before our eyes. So it was it was a real kind of a real a moment of um, kind of catharsis, I think, for for a lot of people who had been kind of living this sort of. Um, the undignified kind of uh, conditions that they that they feel that they've been left with by the by the dictatorship between 1973 and uh, and 1990 there's a kind of basically set the direction for Chile and i think that was you know it was in, inevitably constitutional as well as you as you rightly say um the constitution was was drafted under the dictatorship and, and passed by a by a referendum that's been questioned since as to the sort of legitimacy of it um but it's you know it's it's basically kind of set this uh, very kind of a uh, firm forward direction for the country. So um, I think if we if we kind of talk about that then, so how how do you read the current constitution? I spoke to a, a constitutional expert here in Chile um, in November last year who told me it was kind of the combination of three ideologies, sort of traditional Catholic values, a set of liberal principles, and then some elements that could be considered by some interpretations to be social democratic Um, How do you read the constitution in Chile and to what extent is it responsible for all of the demands that the, the people kind of came out with from the 18th of October onwards?
1: I see the constitution. Sorry, I see the constitution as um, uh, a very specific political and economic project, and uh, that is actually the combination not of the the uh, only Catholic values, but from extreme Catholic values. So uh, Jaime Guzman, who was the um, the architect architect of this constitution, he was uh, from the the sect Opus Dei, and uh, Opus Dei is um, a very extremist form of Catholicism that has been uh, very prominent in in. In Chile, in politics and economics, so this is a sector that has a lot of power, and they um, uh, were pushing for um, constitutionalizing uh, Catholic values, and that the constitution gives uh, a right to live uh, to or, or a right to be protected to the unborn child. So the unborn life has the same standing as uh, a Chilean citizen if you think, if you will. So uh, this is something that is constitutionalized. It's even beyond just, just an anti-abortion legislation. It's something that it would um, completely um, eh, eliminate the possibility of having uh, legal abortion. Uh, and um, we recently changed, uh, a, a law was passed, but only allowing uh, abortion in the cases of rape and incest and, and the life of uh, the mother. So this is something that is very extreme. Um, and if you think about it before, it was legal. So it was uh, criminalizing abortion in a manner that is constitutional, not only just through law. Uh, mm-hmm. The other is that it is not just uh, liberal principles that were um, enshrined. Actually, the uh, economic system was enshrined. The neoliberalism was enshrined. And uh, in, in this manner, uh, we can think about the, this project of Pinochet and the Chicago Boys as a, a revolution uh, imposing, not liberty, but actually the domination of the most powerful uh, over the majority. Because the neoliberal project, um, as it was constitutionalized, it allowed the complete insulation of the uh, representatives from uh, the popular demands. For example, we don't have um, elected uh, governors in, in the states in, in Chile, we only elect the president and the uh, uh, legislative power, and then only the local officials who have no power really uh, of controlling police or uh, allocating funding more than uh, a very small percentage of the budget. So, uh, if you had any complaint at the local level, that cannot, that stops there. That cannot be uh, um, translated into actual power of the people of removing uh, officials that are not doing a good job because those officials have no power. So it was uh, it was a project going against what uh, what has uh, had had happened during uh, the uh, Popular Unity uh, under the Allende government, in which people, the popular sectors, were empowered. So, people got organized, and the constitution uh, allowed for these organizations to grow. So, uh, what the constitution of the 1980 uh, 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 wanted to, wanted to demobilize the people. So, in a way, it was very aptly designed to um, cut the social ties, to demobilize and decentralize, not power, but decentralized functions only. So, power remained centralized. So, this is kind of a very good trick in terms of how to create a constitution that looks liberal, but is not really liberal at the end. Uh, and then the the social democratic principle, really uh, what, what, what the constitution allowed for was a subsidiary system in which the state is there to help private industry. So, um, and it was this, this was a very clever design because it, during the dictatorship, the constitution was, um, of course, approved in a very fraudulent uh, uh, voting, but uh, was not uh, enforced so what happened during the 80s was a complete privatization of the majority of key industries that the state was holding on to so they privatized and then they imposed this constitution when uh, the democracy came back and um and it set the rules of the game for the state not to meddle in economic activities the economic the, the economic activities it was not into already so before because it had privatized so much the state was very very small so the role of the state was just to subsidize private private industry. So giving subsidies and, and incentives. Uh, so we rely primarily for health, for education, for uh, uh, for pensions, for everything, uh, really, uh, on private industry. And now that we're hitting this crisis, we can see that the government, what they do is actually give bailouts to companies, because this is actually the uh, modus operandi that allows uh, the constitution. Uh, the, there's no more much wiggle room for the state to nationalize for example under the
0: current structure mm-hmm. yeah i think that's fascinating you talk about the um, you know the sort of the crisis of representation which uh, which was sort of brought about by this and the the kind of hyper presidential uh, model that was uh, that's enshrined by the constitution i mean do you do you agree with that interpretation of what's been going on in chile do you think that people just didn't have enough say uh, in, what it's, in what was going on at the kind of highest levels of power? Because, I mean, the president even has the, the right to, or the ability to kind of um, direct the legislative agenda, I understand as well, through the constitution. So kind of, do you, do you think that this was a representation crisis that really brought people out onto the streets to demand that their voices were heard?
1: I think it, it, you, can, you can say that in a manner, uh, but I think what, how it is used, this crisis of representation, is that it's used as some, something that was working before and is not working now. I don't agree with that. <laughs> 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 I think that when we came back from a dictatorship, there was uh, a promise of democracy and a promise of uh, equal standing in society and a, a promise of of a better society. There was not uh, individualist. There was more, more in terms of solidarity. But uh, even if the center-left, the supposed center-left, was uh, uh, in power, um, this coalition that uh, had the Christian Democrats in- and so we're always uh, we have the veto from the conservative sectors against uh, women's issues, women's rights. There was not a reform of the system, and the reforms that came they were very um, late in the game, and um, they were uh, very little in, in, in the sense that uh, the damage was already done. Parties were entrenched, and they were working as uh, Morris machines. And because and because there was no accountability really uh, for. Um, to actually have control over the representatives, in 30 years, the right. representatives just uh, ended up serving themselves. So one of the most controversial law- laws that were passed uh, in the recent, I don't know, four or five years um, was the, uh, a law that privatized the sea. So um, a law that allowed for seven uh, companies to own the fishing rights of uh, northern Chile. So how can a law like that pass? It has no 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 benefit for the population. It passes because people are being uh, corrupted and uh, but in a way that cannot be traced. Today this is the problem with corruption. I link the crisis of representation to systemic corruption because corruption is um, understood as this quick pro quo. as We know in in the U.S. Uh, because of the uh, recent impeachment uh, that there has to be. Some consequence to that it has to be a proof of uh, of corruption i need to give you something and you need to uh, have that something recorded somewhere and the problem is that corruption in this manner uh, doesn't work like that anymore uh corruption is very long term so i can be funding someone or a party for a long time and then sometimes I picked up the phone. It's not all the time, and maybe the benefits are for the family, not even for the candidate, or are something that we cannot really see and cannot really trace. So people don't go to jail for political corruption in general. So uh, the problem is that representatives have been co-opted by uh, the oligarchic structure, and they have not been serving the people from the beginning of the return to democracy. So this has been accumulated, and uh, this has been allowed by the constitutional structure. That's why the constitution needs to be changed, and not only because of technical requirements also because we need to understand the Constitution again as the most political of documents It's a new social pact and no reason today to give uh, To, to uh, continue with a Constitution that was written in under dictatorship there, there it, Changing the the basic laws for something better is not going to uh, bring us any pain in a way It's going to just bring us more possibilities of, uh, of uh, Maybe creating the society that we want.
0: Yeah, Sure, and and so we'll we'll come to the the potential change of the constitution in a moment. But it's interesting that you draw the the comparison there between how the constitution sort of created this this oligarchy as well, um, or rather, kind of concentrated the sort of the power and, and wealth and influence and and resources that Chile has to offer, all of it in this kind of tiny insulated elite. Um, and it's interesting that obviously that can be drawn sort of you know or traced back to the constitution in some ways. Uh, and we've seen one of the things we've seen here in Chile is the is this kind of price fixing kind of corruption scandals that happen and uh, happened. I mean, uh, there was a famous one in, in toilet roll, I think, uh, not so long ago. Um, the price of various kind of commodities have been fixed. Do you think that people have basically had everything kind of taken out of their hands and, and they weren't having any any right to kind of, you know, make any decisions anymore? This was, you know, this is something that all of these, you know, even the prices they were paying for things were seemingly being kind of decided on the golf course in, in parts of Santiago.
1: Well, yes, I think the uh, the problem of collusion and fraud in Chile is rampant, and uh, it is incredible that we are considered as one of the uh, clean, clean how do you say, the most clean uh, uh, countries in the world. Uh, we are very corrupt, and uh, but we don't see it, or at least it is not uh, um, evident, or we don't want to call it that. Um, there's a lot of collusion in many private industries, and of course, as we know, the watchdogs of bureaucracy are always a step behind it's very difficult to um control uh the the collusion when they are so little there are f- so uh, few companies that are running the show because they're all friends at the end they're all part of like the seven families that own chile at the end of the way at the end of the day so uh there is um this collusion is allowed because the, also the, the uh, corruption in politics is also allowed. So we had um, in many cases uh, at the beginning of the, uh, or uh, I think in the 90s, at the end of the 90s, we had uh, uh, some scandals about um, um, extra salaries being paid uh, that uh, the that uh, representatives are were not earning enough, and therefore uh, they were uh, they were open for corruption and uh, public officials in order to recruit the best people for, for the state, they need to pay them extra. And because this, this, the salaries were so low, then they had to basically accept bribes. Uh, they were not really bribes, they said, but you know, it, it was extra money. So what the response was, was to legalize it. So now they, they increase their salaries and they have legalized some payments uh, from uh, a, kind of the, the same idea of the super PAC, this tr- uh, triangulation of monies that is not really illegal and it's not really legal at the same time. It's, 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 it's in a limbo. So there's a lot of things in Chile that are in a limbo because they're not le- legislated. So because there's no law doesn't mean that it's corrupt uh, or that it's, in, uh, or it's, uh, or it's um, a thing that we should be pursuing. So, um, Um, There is a confusion and there is a lack of legislation in terms of corruption that obscures the the nexus between the private and the the public and also between the private. So um, one of the most um, uh, terrible collusions was uh, in in pharmacies. So drug prices that were uh, 100 percent more in in poor neighborhoods. neighborhoods. So this was even worse because you were um, uh, taking advantage of the, the popular sectors or were less informed. So uh, you were really getting rich out of uh, poor people's pockets. And uh, this is something that exploded. And the, um, the courts have been very lenient with, uh, with these people. And actually um, they, um, uh, they uh, sentenced one of, uh, a couple of the CEOs of one of these companies to uh, ethics classes instead of jail time. But uh, if, you, uh, if you steal um, a phone in the street, you go to jail and you actually go to jail. To prison, so uh, there is a disparity between how you, the uh, upper classes are treated and how the uh, popular sectors are treated in Chile.
0: So one of the most uh, one of the most interesting kind of facets that I certainly witnessed here in here in Santiago and also across the country was the this concept of cabildos, which are these sort of town hall style meetings uh, that are kind of organic, self arranged uh, among Chileans, often with with a theme as well, uh, in public spaces, in parks, in in, in town halls. And they basically were, were people coming together to discuss what they wanted to see uh, in terms of a fairer society, the, the demands that they had, the problems that they had, um, share their experiences of how things were going and how things were going under the current model. And it was a beautiful thing to see. I think that it's you know certainly coming from the UK where we're certainly a bit more a bit more reserved. It's very hard to imagine that uh, that happening. You know certainly in. Uh, certainly where I'm from, but it was an incredible thing to, to witness. I was just wondering kind of what you, what you thought about that and how, how the cabildos have kind of shaped, uh, you know, kind of policy on a very kind of local level.
1: It is remarkable, really, as you say, uh, the amount of uh, self-organization that Chileans have uh, undergone in, in, during this process uh, is uh, is, uh, is fascinating, really. Uh, but if we think about um, all revolutions in history have started from the local level, from local organizations. So from the town hall meetings in the U.S. to uh, the communes and the uh, primary assemblies in in France, Uh, to uh, the councils in Germany and uh, in Russia, the Soviets. Uh, So in Chile, we have the cabildos. And this is something that uh, self-organization is just natural. Every time you have a crisis or you need to um, uh, face a problem, people get together. And people get together first to exchange experiences and then to figure out what to do. And this is just natural and it's something that this is what I think we need to institutionalize to uh, bring, make them legal and make them part of the system. Because um, the republic as a concept, as the idea that uh, James Madison had of the republic, this republic was a a mixed government, was a mixed constitution in which not only we selected the best to rule, you also had the people organize in order to censor and, and, and surveil their elites. So that is something that is lacking in every democratic uh, democracy around the world. So I think today, Chile, um, which was the laboratory for neoliberalism, needs to be the laboratory for democracy. Today, we have these institutions that are uh, self-convoked, springing up organically, um, and we need to give them uh, a form, a shape, uh, and preserve them. And this is um, what uh, the philosopher Hannah Arendt would say that this is the place of appearances, the space for freedom. The space f- for freedom needs to be uh, constitutionalized, to be preserved. If not, this uh, kind of a revolutionary spirit will, will die out and we will go back to the same system that we have today, maybe with better elites for a little while, but it will not last long. In order for the people to have a real power and and, and for the system to be accountable to the majority, people need to be organized, not just vote the preference that they have, but actually uh, vote, uh, to censor government, to uh, veto, and to initiate legislation that is not being discussed and is being censored uh, within. I think one, one is, what is necessary now is to pass from the expression that is, being, uh, is happening inside these uh, councils, these cabildos, uh, and to pass to decision and to have uh, to give them a role in the constituent process they, 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 the constituent process started on the ground on the streets and uh, and was um, kept alive in this in this meeting. And uh, therefore, they need to have a, a, a role in this process. They cannot be left out. It cannot be just replaced by a representative system in which we select others to write the rules. So I think uh, what could come out of these councils, if we um, if we institutionalize them in a, in a manner, would be to have a declaration of rights, like a Bill of Rights emanating from the people that could frame the writing of the Constitution and therefore could guide the representatives that are elected to um, write. A constitution that is uh, in accordance with that kind of basic law, written by the people. I think that is something innovative, creative that we can pull off if we have uh, enough uh, resources and imagination.
0: Sure. Yeah. And, and you've, you've already mentioned that there's this, uh, there's a possibility that the constitution will now change. Uh, that was one of the upshots of the, uh, of the social movement in sort of October, November time. I think it was November the 12th that the. Uh, um, the accord was signed between the the heads of the parties to to schedule a constitutional referendum for the end of April, uh, which was then postponed. So obviously because of the pandemic, we've uh, we've ended up with that now being um, rescheduled for the twenty fifth of, of October this year. Um, there's obviously a long way to go still, um, but just to a, a kind of a quick word on the constitutional mechanism that will um, uh, that will that will shape the new constitution, or sh- should the should Chile vote kind of yes to to forming one? And it, it, interestingly and, uh, and importantly as well, is the, the the concept of gender parity in the uh, constitutional body.
1: Let's start by the by the accord uh, itself. So um, when the constitutional movement started in the streets after. The civil disobedience of the students, high school students in the metro state and the repression and the backlash uh, that basically ignited the uprising. And I don't call it agido, as uh, they call it in Chile, as the outburst, because this is not an outburst. This is not a natural phenomenon. This uh, is a movement with agents, and they have a direction. So uh, if we call it, uh, we call the um, Arab Spring an uprising, we should call the Chilean uh, outburst an uprising too. Uh, so this uprising that started in on, on the streets um, was um, like a, a snowball, basically. The government understood, even though they didn't want to change the constitution, and they were very adamant that they didn't want to change it, uh, they were forced to. And um, what happened is that they controlled the process instead of uh, enabling it. So the moment that they understood that there was no way that this was uh, going to be stopped, they decided to call the heads of the parties of some of the parties not all of them uh to a secret meeting uh in 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 uh, in in the house of government and a meeting that uh, went on a, i think for more than 10 hours and uh ended up like at 3 in the morning with a, with a signed document in which uh, uh the the uh, there was approved um a plebiscite uh in april as you well said um uh but um a yes and no plebiscite and then in the same uh ballot the option of either a constituent uh, a convention or a mixed convention. So the constituent convention would be 100% uh, um, voted in by the people through the uh, through the ballot, and the mixed uh, convention would be uh, half of the convention elected by a popular vote and half of the convention elected by uh, selected uh, by, par- by by people in parliament. So basically, in Congress, they will make a, a a list of self selected candidates I think that the people can vote for if that option uh, wins, which is the worst of the of two worlds as uh, uh, Javier Sanjuria, who is uh, a chilean uh, there is um, uh, a professor in the u k um, uh, was saying because basically it w- it would leave Congress without people to actually operate, so you would have a constituent assembly making the constitution and a uh, uh, congress running at half steam, making all kinds of uh, rules for uh a, a, trying to fix the current crisis. So this would be not a good option. So uh, uh, people are, uh, the progressive uh, uh, front is asking for people to vote yes to the uh, constituent process and to vote for a fully elected uh, constituent convention, which is a no brainer for me. but the point is that the, the Congress wanted, or so the, 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 the government wanted to control the process. So, um, this, this agreement, even though it kickstarted from a formal perspective, the uh, constituent process was not well received by the, by the people in the streets. Because they were, there was no representative of the people there. They, the old parties were at fault of uh, kind of benefiting or doing nothing uh, uh, by reproducing the system for so many years. So people were in the street and they were losing their eyes uh, through the repression of the state. So they should have a say. And one of the mechanisms that was um, negotiated in that agreement is that all of the uh, the, uh, the articles that uh, were going to be discussed to be uh, um, included in the constitution will be voted by a two third majority. This means that a third of the that convention would have veto power over. Uh, The majority, and therefore, uh, because the um, Chilean right uh, has around a third or even 40 percent of the vote uh, in Chile, it is likely that they will have at least a third of representatives in that uh, chamber. So it is probable that uh, the right-wing parties will be able to veto any social change uh, that uh, will be tried to uh, be enshrined in the Constitution. Some of uh, my um, colleagues, uh, lawyers uh, and constitutional thinkers uh, we're um, actually pleased with this result, saying that um, we could have a minimal constitution, as uh, kind of like the US constitution, which is very uh, slim and everybody can understanding, uh, understand it, and everybody's gonna be happy because it's gonna be uh, um, a, um, a constitution that is going to be a, a great agreement, if you will. However, uh, this is uh, doesn't make any sense in the sense that the constituent process started in the streets, and people are asking for uh, universal healthcare, for um, uh, pensions and uh, free education and many other things that involved the changing of the rules at the constitutional level. So if the right-wing parties are going to veto that social change that uh, the people are asking in the streets, then the constitution is not very, going to be very legitimate. So this is uh, the kind of the problem that the state, the the government created the rules of the game for the constitution to be written. So there is the probability that this constitution will not be really legitimate because will not incorporate the socio economic rights that are being demanded on the streets
0: yeah that's that's very interesting your kind of perspective on it i think um one of my questions was going to be how hopeful you are that this uh, is a way that meaningful change can be achieved but perhaps that's one to leave for the end i think you've given a given a an indictment on that already and so if you've mentioned a couple of a couple of the things there in terms of healthcare um, you know pension reform so so which which are the kind of areas that reform needs to be specifically targeted you know, the recognition of uh, of indigenous rights for example which has been another another big part of the movement um, you know like the, the sort of the environmental matters as well are there any real areas that you think uh, are worth kind of mention in this in this regard
1: um, yes so um, as you will mention uh, the uh, there the, the issues that need to be addressed are um, the welfare state issues, basically all the socioeconomic rights that uh, in uh, many parts of Europe are um, um, are afforded to uh, every person living in their territory, which is healthcare, care, uh, education, um, access to um, pensions um, and many other uh, is basic services. So this is something that we need to think about socioeconomic rights to be uh, included in the constitution, not just liberal rights, formal rights that just allow you to not be blocked by the state. And uh, you can do it if you have the resources to exercise your right, you can actually exercise your right. But if you do not have uh, the material conditions to actually exercise your rights, uh, the state does, does not guarantee it. What we need to move is from that non-guaranteeing of material uh, capabilities to a state that will allow us to fulfill uh, and to exercise uh, these rights uh, through guaranteeing them in material ways. And for that, we need to include socioeconomic rights. Uh, Also, um, the question of gender parity that you asked me and I didn't respond before, so one of the, uh, one of the um, uh, victories of uh, the more progressive uh, camp uh, in this kind of struggle for the rules of the convention was to, that they uh, agreed uh, to have gender, complete gender parity, 50-50 in the constituent convention, not in the, con- in the mixed convention. So uh, if the constituent convention wins in the, in the ballot, uh, 50% will be men and 50% will be women. So this is going to be, this is revolutionary. This has never been tried, at least in the modern world. Uh, I know that there is a, there are a couple of examples that are a, 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 in, a, in the Middle East. Uh, that have tried this at a very local uh, level, but this would be the first time at the national scale that uh, a constituent assembly will have um, 50% of the members being female, uh, which is remarkable. And and this is another, uh, uh, other sorts of rights that need to be enshrined in the constitution, which are reproductive rights. So as I told you before, uh, the constitution uh, gives uh, the right to the unborn. uh, So uh, this needs to change for uh, women to have uh, control over the bodies. And this is, uh, there's something that uh, paid uh, reproductive labor needs to be also accounted for. The majority of uh, heads of household, as many parts in the world, uh, are in Chile, also women, and uh, they are single mothers. So there are, uh, there are rights that need to be guaranteed to poor women, not just to uh, wealthy women that uh, can, get, uh, a, can get equal opportunities uh, regardless.
0: You've painted a really interesting picture there of the the current constitution and the and the, the problems with it, the possibilities that could come from this, and obviously you know if we're it's dangerous to assume that Chile would vote yes, uh, will vote yes to to a new constitution. But then, so do you? Obviously, this is going to be the the newest constitution in the world at the time that it's signed, and it's a real opportunity, as you've already said, to to really showcase democracy, and it's it's got a lot of potential. The whole process. Are you hopeful uh, about this? And and, and do you think this is the way that's going to achieve um, kind of lasting change for Chile?
1: I'm hopeful. Uh, I think that we cannot do worse in the sense that uh, with the constitution that we have, which is a neoliberal constitution uh, written in dictatorship, I think whatever comes out of that assembly will be better than what we have. (laughs) That is for sure. However, I think that the potential of really being creative and uh, thinking outside of the constitutional box and uh, a, really be risked in the sense that uh, include uh, the popular input uh, in a manner that has never been uh, included before and radically change the system for a better system is an opportunity that we need to take. And uh, I think Chileans are organized enough and there is enough discontent for people to keep organizing. And uh, I am hopeful that uh, at least my book as a political intervention, which comes with a guide that is downloadable for free, uh, uh, for people to literally fill in and uh, get the signatures and, and uh, deposit it in, in their municipality in order to get um, a legal personhood for their council and uh, actually get this started. Uh, this is something that people can start now, even in, in, in during the quarantine, uh, people can start talking about it can start um uh, throwing out ideas and uh of a way to push from outside of the convention uh a, for um social change because i don't I, I am not hopeful that the uh social change will come really from inside the convention because of the um two third majority supermajority that is um required there's gonna be a conservative veto that's for sure so I think in order to bypass that veto, we need to push from outside of the convention and uh, build uh, an organized popular power to do so, and therefore change uh, democracy from the base.
0: That's fascinating. I think it'd be great to see a, a constitution or a model that's the uh, the representation of some kind of um, popular consensus, which obviously the current one isn't. So I think you're you're right to say that yeah, from from both within and and outside of the of the assembly, I think that would be you know the best way to kind of push for. Uh, profound change. So, Camila Vergara, thank you so much for your your time. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Thank you, John and Camila Vergara, a legal scholar at Columbia, uh, there for that fascinating discussion on what's at stake with the potential reforms to Chile's Pinochet-era constitution. It's a big story to watch, and we'll be following it closely here at Meradas. Next week, we have me talking to Andres Portiera, a historian of Cuba, about the history and politics of Cuba's medical brigades and the island's vexed relationship with the United States. It's a really informed insider's take from Andres, so uh, do tune in. Thanks, as ever, also to Diego Complido, who did our artwork, uh, La Motivante, who do our brilliant music and theme tune. Uh, You can find out more about them at our website, moradaspodcast.com. Uh, please do get in touch with complaints, corrections, suggestions for interviewees, uh, or if you want to buy some advertising space with us, uh, and you can do that by adding us on social media, uh, Maradas Pod, uh, or using the email address, info at com. Thanks for listening. From me, Laurie, and from John, you've been the best. Take care.